Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. This week marked the 145th anniversary of the birth of Aleister Crowley, a man once notoriously referred to in his own time as, quote, the wickedest man in the world. With a reputation like that, one could be forgiven for thinking Crowley must have been responsible for the deaths of countless innocent lives. He was given this title in the 1920s, after all, and the likes of Stalin, Mao, Hitler, and Mussolini were all very much in the world at that time. But there's no evidence, nor real reason to believe, that Crowley was responsible, directly or indirectly, for anyone's death. The victims of an accident in a mountaineering trip he organized notwithstanding. And while, yes, one self-styled, dubiously credentialed historian with a book to sell accuses Crowley of engineering the deaths of several people connected to the opening of King Tut's tomb, well, this idea has not gone mainstream. All the same, mainstream journalists routinely refer to Crowley as an evil devil-worshipper, as though this is just an objective fact. But I've always known him to be so much more than that, a man who enjoyed ticking off the establishment every bit as much as he enjoyed authentic spiritual exploration, a man who created his own authentic religious philosophy, Thelema, which still claims a strong base of adherence among new religious seekers. One of them is scholar and Crowley biographer Richard Kaczynski, whose biography of Crowley, Perdurabo, is considered by many to be the authoritative account of his life, and he joins me today. Oh, and one side note. I'm one of those people who, like Ozzy Osbourne, routinely made the mistake of pronouncing his name Crowley, a mistake for which I'm grateful Richard corrected me on early in this episode. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Richard, thanks for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for the invite. My impression of Aleister Crowley is one of two things. Either he is the uh, least misunderstood person of the last hundred years or the most misunderstood person of the last hundred years. Um, which of those is 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 right? And, and what do you think is, in your experience, um, talking about and writing about Crowley uh, throughout your lifetime, in your experience, what is the um, thing that people tend to get most wrong uh, about Crowley? Well, a number of things. Um, and I would say certainly the latter of your, of your two choices is <laughs> one of the most misunderstood. Um, one, and, uh, and, and, not, and not to pick, but one of the things that people get wrong very often is the pronunciation of his name, which rhymes with holy. <laughs> and, and, and again, holy is kind of a pun that he uh he employed in uh, some of his poetry uh where he references himself so um um often you know again with tongue in cheek um yeah, he had, yeah. crowley had a great sense of humor um but i think one of the things that people tend to well t- I, I guess two things uh that people tend to get wrong is that um 
first of all, the the kind of core principle of his philosophy is summed up in this statement, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Right. And people will often interpret that as just a, hey, do whatever you feels good, do whatever you want. There's, there's this total um, sort of license to being a complete libertine. And that's not really how Crowley understood that line. Um you know, in in his mind, and again, I'm kind of paraphrasing his own thoughts on this, but in his mind, it was that um, everybody had to figure out for themselves, and this is where the techniques of meditation and magic and introspection come into play, is to find out, you know, your your purpose, your essence, to get in tune with your true inner self and figure out what you are here on this earth to do mm-hmm. and once you figured that out he called that you know your your will um then all of your energy is directed toward achieving that or you know to becoming you know your yourself or becoming the you you were meant to be and everything else is a distraction and so rather than being completely libertine doing whatever you want it's actually focus on this one thing to the exclusion of all else um so that's one thing that people tend to get wrong about crowley another thing is that um you know, you, you hear there's so much inf- you know, misinformation on the internet and oftentimes crowley is described as oh, there is <laughs> the, the satanist black magician who sacrificed children and ate them and and that's not, not what he was about oh that's 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 not okay that's not true got it all right sorry for the, the listeners who are hoping that's for a, a really uh, toasty sort of uh <laughs> our session here but, but but there's plenty of other good stuff okay <laughs> i mean he he did he did see sex as a path to uh to, to doing magic so there's hey there's that whole thing <laughs> yeah yeah that's certainly he's not a boring character uh yeah. even if he isn't <laughs> even if he isn't the uh the incarnation of the devil that many people wanted to to cast him as um so there's some things that kind of strike me about his kind of origin story uh when i look at the uh circumstances from which he came, and also the time from which he came, and um, the other figures that uh, sort of overlap his life. Um, I did a, a episode about H.P. Lovecraft a few weeks ago, uh-huh. and um, he, you know they they had uh, were contemporaries uh, right. uh, in terms of you know the years they lived. Um, and then I think about like Gerald Gardner and um, and even you know someone who I know he also crossed paths with, which is L. Ron Hubbard. Um, and there seems like there's a there's a there's a much bigger story here uh, than the one that tends to be told just in terms of um, Crowley himself and the, the the movement that he started. In your own research, do you get a sense of like can you point beyond his own personal biography, which we'll get to soon? Um, what's going on in like the late 1800s uh, into the beginning of the 20th century um, that is that is spawning this sort of quasi-revivalist, but but really revolutionary new religious movement phenomenon. I think there's a number of things behind that. And I don't know that this is, you know, just a sudden, you know, revival. Uh, you know, people have kind of talked about this idea of occult revivals at various points in history. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one supposedly in the 1970s, you know, and, um, you know, I'm not sure if it's really a matter of a revival or it's just this thing that's constantly bubbling around and this essential you know some every once in a while 
you know, society kind of becomes kind of more aware of it. Um, cause I, th- I think of, you know, Crowley came out of this whole scene with the, um, the order of the golden dawn, mm-hmm. which was this, you know, which was started by a group of Freemasons who wanted to put together a group that was doing some more overtly esoteric things and also wanted to be more inclusive of, um, of women, you know, the other half of the population, uh, which you know, Freemasonry did not allow, but at the same time, they all kind of came from this, you know, background. The founders and kind of brought a lot of this this thinking about about ritual and things like that. You know, we there there was you know in in, in the UK, you know, with its various colonies basically, and so you had this fascination with things dealing with India, fascination with things dealing with you know the Middle East, and you had this whole Richard Burton Arabian Nights sort of uh, <laughs> right. fantasy thing going on, the Crusades, um, you know, and likewise, you know, the Far East and so on. So all these. Um, sort of romantic ideas, even though they may not be particularly you know, historically accurate, seem to be all kind of converging, you know, into this sort of fantasy idea of sources of ancient wisdom. And and so coming out of the Golden Dawn, not only do you have, you know, Aleister Crowley, but you have people like, you know, Arthur Edward Waite, William Butler Yeats, um, and just, you know, various other people. And the, the founders of the Golden Dawn, uh, people like William you know, when Westcott, who translated and wrote all kinds of books on, on esotericism and magic, and uh, one of his co-founders, uh, Samuel Lydell McGregor Mathers, uh, was another one who, you know, he translated the, the book of the sacred magic of Abramelin the Mage and the Goetia and various other things. So uh, there's, yeah, this whole group of people. And uh, I mean, I think at least at that time, part of it was a a leisure class sort of thing um, and that, you know, it was, you know, there were doctors and, you know, folks who made a lot of money and who could buy a lot of obscure occult books, things in small print runs and indulge in this pursuit of, of magic. And in that sense, you know, Crowley was basically a trust fund kid. Mm-hmm. You know, he had, you know, he inherited the equivalent of about six or $7 million and just basically lived as he pleased and was able to kind of pursue this as well but um now i mean but you 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 see these elements of esotericism just all around because you know they've got the, the theosophical society which was contemporary with crowley it was actually founded the year he was born um there was you know spiritualism had kind of preceded that um you've got young you know carl young the psychologist coming along and kind of putting this you know, the, with the collective conscious, um, collective unconscious, putting this idea of uh, kind of a quasi mystical interpretation of Freud, and bringing you know that into it, and you know we see with things like you know Jung's Red Book and things like that that he was again very plugged into these sorts of ideas. So yeah, there's definitely something um, you know in the air um, at that time. Crowley himself. Uh, was raised as a, a fundamentalist Christian in in England, um, and I don't think he's the last fundamentalist Christian to have turned away from what his parents taught him <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and and turned towards someone like Aleister Crowley. Um, but I wonder in in your 
again in your assessment of of him and his life um what what his i mean let me put it this way a lot of people who um reject fundamentalism or or grow up in that setting reject religion altogether right um that that seems to be a more common approach um than or a more common reaction um than uh, exploring or or even helping to build um a new religious movement what does it say about him um you know what 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 drove his uh religious curiosity and, and why didn't he just end up being one of those people who's like yeah you know i'm just going to go live a secular boring uh existence free of this this you know fundamentalist christianity yeah well i mean in terms of you know the kind of the defining influences of his life i do think that two of them are the 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 fact that he was a trust fund kid that he inherited this family fortune which really allowed him to do what he wanted mm-hmm. and um the ever was the religious upbringing that he had um that he certainly rebelled against but at the same time it was ingrained so deeply in him you know there's you know he tells the story about how his you know, mother, when she became exasperated with him, would call him, you know, the beast of revelation you know, from the book of Revelation. And, you know, his father was a, a lay minister and his, and it was someone that he actually very much admired. And uh, some of his religious rebellion actually happened after his father died of, of tongue cancer, ironically, which, you know, for, for a preacher just, just seems, you know, again, of you know, like God's got a sixth sense of divine humor, retribution. You know, like, yeah, yeah, like Depeche Mode <laughs> says. You know, um, and and it's when you know he he saw other people when when his mother tried to step in, kind of as the as the the spiritual force, or his uncle Tom Bond Bishop tried to step in as a spiritual force. Um, that. He, he he kind of reacted against that. It was kind of like besmirching the the memory of his beloved father. It was kind of like a how dare you sort of reaction that prompted you know a lot of his rebellion. But um, I think at the end of the day, he kind of had this existential crisis because he had looked at going into like politics and things like this um, in in college. But then he had this realization that, you know, who, who can remember the name of, you know, the prime minister three people ago and that these things are all very temporary and fleeting and that the only things that matter and endure are spiritual truths. And so this this became the, the thing that uh, drove him. And um, I think there, you know, part of what drove this was the idea of, of – secrecy around this you know there there's this secret school of wisdom there's this hidden knowledge and there's this opportunity of discovering this unknown world um i know for me as a as a very as a young person that was kind of the appeal of all of this to me too it's like wow there's this whole, there's this whole other world out there that you know we can access you know if you have the right tools and perhaps you know that makes sense given that you know crowley was also a, a mountaineer and you know he he climbed mountains that very few people had ever set foot on so mm-hmm. i think that sense of adventure but you see that you know the result of this though is that you you still see those echoes of his religious upbringing you know his father was a lay preacher you know who would travel around giving away pamphlets and what did crowley do he was the same thing he was preaching his own law and and 
handing out copies of the book of the law or, or you know, getting people to buy his other books, you know, same kind of mission. You know, you look at something like the vision and the voice where he's channeling these you know, visions from Enochian angels. And it's all this very, you know, King James apocalyptic type imagery. Right. And, and even right. to the sense that he kind of incorporates that in his own self identity, where he calls himself, you know, the beast from Revelation. And, <laughs> right. you know, this, this whole idea that, you know, of, you know, do it the world is like, find why you're here and do it and focus on that. That's not a, a terribly radical idea. But then he kind of couches it in this kind of quasi antinomian apocalyptic, you know, terminology, bringing in, you know, the beast and the scarlet woman and all this other stuff. And that kind of puts a different sort of edge on it all. Yeah. I, so while we're on that subject, one of the things that is uh, constantly fascinating to me about him is the way that there's this weird kind of line that he walks between sincerity and also what today i think we would call trolling right that that <laughs> and and i don't mean that in a i don't mean that in a dismissive way at all but no, i no. i my my sense is that is that that is um quite deliberate so when i look at for instance the language of of um you know do what thou wilt that should be be the entirety of the law um, you know, it, it, it's very clearly, like you said, kind of rooted in this in this King Jamesian biblical um, language, and 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 yeah, deliberately invoking images from the Book of Revelation, um, and and saying and doing things that I mean, clearly were meant to um, terrify suburban Christian parents, right? Um, <laughs> But at the same time, like there is a what appears to be a genuine and sincere religious philosophy and a and a very um, human centric uh, religious philosophy there. So, how how should one navigate that? Right? How, like, how when it when it appears that Crowley is primarily kind of poking his finger in the eye of uh, Western Christian morality um, versus trying to actually teach something that is that is useful and um and spiritually relevant give me your input on that if 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 if, if that makes yeah. any sense to you at all the answer to that is that he's doing both at the same time right right um and and when he you know for instance when he calls himself you know the beast 666 yes that is calculated to be shocking but at the same time he can sit there and say well you know according to traditional astrology you know and, and ancient grimoire magic each of the planets has a number saturn is three jupiter is four mars is five and the sun is six and a you know a the magic square of the sun a six by six grid in which you write the numbers one through 36 so that all the rows and all the columns add up to the same number which is you know which you know, and which people thought was pretty amazing, but you add all those rows up or you just add up the numbers one through 36 and you get 666. And, and, and so he's saying, this is, this is imagine, this is the number of the sun. In fact, you know, one time in court, you know, he was suing someone for a libel for claiming that he practiced black magic. And they asked him, you, you call yourself the great beast. And he says, you know, that, that just means sunlight. If you don't like the great beast, you can just call me little sunshine. <laughs> And I think that's just hilarious, but, but he's at the same time, he's completely sincere. Yeah. Um, you know, when he became, you know, the, the British head of the 
Order of Oriental Templars or uh, OTO, Order Templi Orientis, um, he chose as his motto the name Baphomet, which was the false god the Templars were accused of worshiping and were mm-hmm. tortured and put to death for. I mean, that's pretty ironic. And, right. you know, I, th- I know I, I've often joked that if Crowley were alive today, he like, he'd be identifying with the lizard people, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing. It's just kind of <laughs> co-opting, you know, and turning things on its head and saying, ah, I'm going to take this, but I'm going to make it mean the opposite of what you think it means. Right. <laughs> so he... <laughs> He would essentially just say he's all the things that QAnon thinks is is out to destroy America. I like, I I, I kind of think you're right, but but also at the same time, I you know you look at the the, the direct line between him and um, Anton Lavey, for instance, and who did a very similar sort of thing. Uh, it's very performative, but also sincere, um, and also very you know it was it was reacting to the status quo and to Western morality, uh, but at the same time. It, it was meaningful. It, it, he, he wasn't kidding around, right? Um, even if there was there was performance there. And LeVay almost invited the the people who called him a devil worshiper, right? Like by 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 using their language kind of against them. Yeah, there's and you know there's a certain problem of terminology that happens in a lot of esotericism, but this but you know Crowley's a good example of that. Yeah. You know the the, the statement very specific or, or interpreted something very specific with those words. Um, it's also something that lends itself to misinterpretation, just as, you know, calling himself the great beast or Baphomet um, is also prone to misinterpretation. But, you know, we also see this problem with, you know, in, in the, you know, in the witchcraft tradition, you know, where they're trying to, where, where there's an effort to reclaim the word witchcraft, right. but it means something very different in the popular imagination than what they mean by it, and and so there's that tension between kind of reclaiming these words and redefining them, and then having to accept the fact that there's going to be people who are going to misunderstand you because of the word choice. So while we're um, on that subject, earlier you, you you dropped the word magic, and I think this is another thing that is worth exploring uh, in terms of what that actually means. Most people might hear that and say, well, magic's not real, and think like, you know, Harry Potter or something like that. Um, to people like Crowley, it very much is real, um, but probably not what people think it is, right? That that it's not about waving wands around and lightning coming out of it or something like that. Um, so, what what is magic in 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 this context, and how does it how does it function in terms of the um, sort of religious landscape of something like um, Philema? Yeah, well. Crowley did want to make a distinction between what he called magic and what other people might interpret as sleight of hand or stage magic, right. which is why he spells his magic with a K at the end, uh, just just to kind of set it apart by that spelling. And in his, his book, Magic and Theory and Practice, he offers a definition, which is to say that science is the, or, or magic rather, is the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will, which is a very broad kind of definition. And in fact, he says that the act of blowing your nose 
is an act of magic. You desire to blow your nose and you do it. So you manifest this intention. Um, you know, in addition to the Golden Dawn, part of Crowley's background was in the secularist movement, which was this Victorian movement to kind of get religion out of public life and to have law and 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 policy, you know, just the way we live our lives, dictated by 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 evidence, by science, you know that that what how we operate as a, as a society should be evidence based and not driven by you know religious dogma. And it wasn't so much saying that you know religion or spirituality was bad, but that you know we needed to have evidence to back this up. And Crowley therefore approached magic in a very scientifically minded kind of way that, you know, he thought that magic should be something that is reproducible, that you should keep a diary of of your magical experiments and and record, you know, the the time of day, the circumstances, the weather, what you ate, you know, and and also record the outcome. And his thinking was that, you know, the, the, here, you know, for my writings and my biography and everything else, you get a sense of what I've done and what has worked for me. This may or may not work for you. You need to try it and try different methods and see what you get results with because your results or what your what works for you or your sense of, you know, all of this may be very different from mine. But, um, I think at different points in time, if you look at Crowley's writings, he may talk about magic as dealing with actual entities that live on different planes of existence. And other times he speaks about them as being part of your own psyche. And, you know, in a way, you know, to the extent to which all this kind of comes through your own senses, that distinction may or not matter. But it's, you know, the, the idea of, of magic is to, you know, and then I guess in the classical sense, yes, there is, there is waving of wands that happens in magic. There are like elemental weapons, you know, there's, there's the wand, there's a dagger, there's a cup, and there's a disc, you know, like corresponding to the suits of the tarot, for instance. And um, the, these are ex basically externalized symbols where, you know, the wand represents force. The dagger represents, you know, the, the sharpness of intellect. You know, the cup represents emotion and the, the disc represents you know, the material world, you know, money and prosperity and those sorts of, you know, very, you know, material needs and interests. And it's through basically the, the manipulation of these symbols, you know, which one could do in one's head. And that's, you know, that's, you know, some of these Eastern methods of attainment, you know, are, are much more, you know, internally focused and, you know, and, and the kind of the classical, you know, golden dawn ceremonial magic sort of approach is just, you've got these externalized symbols that you're kind of manipulating, but, you know, it's, it's very easy to see that as some sort of a, now, I hate to use the word psychodrama, but but it's kind of a it's kind of pushing the leave pushing and pulling the levers of your consciousness to get things to happen, and so it's this is this process of exploration um, and finding out what makes you tick, you know, and I think that's where we kind of then get back to this idea of 
why magic can be a tool uh, to 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 live honestly with who you are. Yeah, and so the other the other side of this that I <laughs> I'm always been fascinated by is um, kind of in the whole um, you know trolling the suburban Christian white family uh, <laughs> element of it is is the role that uh, drugs played in his life and in in his um, religious experience and his his uh, use of mind-altering substances is far more consistent with um religious history than than not uh that that you know he he recognized that um if you even read the bible right um it talks about people yeah you know um ingesting <laughs> uh mind-altering substances and and you know th- this is this is a a very very common um element of uh, an encounter with with the divine or with uh the mystery um throughout throughout the ages so what what was his contextualization of of the role that should play and and like how did they change his life and 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 influence his um his his teaching and his writing yeah there, there's a couple of places in, in crowley's writings where you've kind of got to read between the lines yeah um when when crowley gets vague or kind of circuitous in his language um oftentimes it seems to be he's hinting around at his bisexuality and um, it also seems that it's, he's not always completely transparent when he's talking about drugs either. Um, <laughs> and, and which is kind of odd because I can understand the, the hedging about the bisexuality because he had the example of Oscar Wilde who was imprisoned. Um, and, and he didn't want to wind up in that situation. Um, but... You know, up until 1921, 22, when the Dangerous Drugs Act was passed, you know, it was perfectly legal, you know, to indulge in drugs. I mean, Freud was a big fan of cocaine, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so why, why he would be a little, you know, less forefright about this, I'm not entirely sure. But, um, you know, for instance, he put, he staged these seven plays called The Rights of Eleusis. Um, each of each of the seven plays were, you know, these sort of magical, you know, mystery dramas based on one of the seven planets of classical astrology, and and so by that by planets that also includes the moon and the sun, even though those aren't really planets. But you know, um, yeah. at the first of these, um, he passed around this libation bowl, which, you know, one of his students described as smelling like rotten apples. And it almost certainly had psychoactive properties to enhance the religious experience. Um, he was he was a big fan of Anhelonium Lewini, which he at one point claimed to have introduced to Europe, which uh, may or may not be true, but it was certainly something that he took credit for and um, had had even gone so far as in some of his travels, he had stopped at the Park Davis Laboratory in Detroit, and they actually put together a preparation of, of the substance for him, uh, for his experiments. And unfortunately, that diary does not survive. But, um, but yes, Crowley was definitely a, an entheogenic explorer. Um, I, I think... In, in saying that, I think one other thing, though, that is useful to, to also clarify is that 
that while Crowley did engage in these experiments, and, and it was you know clearly had had an you know, impact and influence on on his work, but at the same time, this is confined to a rather um, narrow period of his life. Because I think there was this image, you know, kind of going back to where we started, of you know, misperceptions about Crowley, and one of these is that he was this, this just this drug riddled, lifelong right. addict. <laughs> And um, you know that is not you know not the case, um, but people often point to him as being a heroin addict, for instance. And the the situation with with heroin actually is that he was taking this medicinally. Um, and there were two periods in his life where this happened. One one was the end of nineteen nineteen, beginning of nineteen twenty. So he would have been. 45 at this time. He was suffering from asthma and a doctor prescribed heroin as an analgesic. And it was just a couple years after that that the Dangerous Drug Act was passed and heroin became illegal. But, you know, after having been on this for two years, he was addicted and kind of went through a couple of years there where he was you know, buying from a dealer and then kind of ran out of money and wound up going cold turkey. So you've got this period of four, maybe five years where he was on this for asthma. And then toward the end of his life, you know, when he was, you know, 68, um, the, the British government allowed heroin to be used once again as a medical treatment for asthma, but it was in very controlled government doses. And, and so he was, he was put back on this by his doctor because he was having a really hard time. And he had he, oh, wow. the other more, the other treatments that were available weren't helping him. And so again, you know, he was in the, in the late, in his, you know, late, later sixties up to the time he died at 72, he was getting these government controlled doses as medicine, but the years in between that, you know, he 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 wasn't really doing this. So you, know, you kind of find this period of, of exploration with the drugs, kind of in his golden dawn days, and kind of the decade or two coming out of that. And then it kind of he kind of goes off in other directions, um, you know. And and, he, and the same thing kind of happens with his magic. You know, he uh, he kind of gets hip to this idea that sex can be used as a form of magic or as ritual and it's kind of like you mean i don't need this wand and disc and dagger and cup and the robes and all this stuff i can just have sex this is great <laughs> and and once he you know realizes this um yeah i mean his the those this his working with like the conventional ritual stuff just kind of stops you know and he's like I, i'm all in on this so you you alluded to it earlier um about your early encounters with Crowley um, and sort of how you came to be the, you know, a a scholar um, on, on, on Crowley. And I'm still fascinated by the, uh, the number of, of young people um, who are still uh, really intrigued by, by him when they discover him and, and as well as the, uh, the sort of stereotyping that goes on, uh, and, and the almost persecution. I, I, you know, I'm, I, I followed the, um, the case of the West Memphis three very closely. And one of the things that, you know, Damien Eccles was, was, um, uh, convicted for was like reading Aleister Crowley. And, and, um, so, you know, there's, there's this almost like inviting the danger element of it. There's this forbidden seduction of it, but there's also the reaching out to, a you know, a sort of a lost tribe uh, element of it too. So I wonder for your for your own 
uh, encounter. You know, what was it like for you growing up? And like, what was the moment that you were like, oh, this is so cool? Like, what, when did you have that, aha, this is awesome moment? I think about this a lot because in my mind, as I look back on my childhood, it was just that this stuff was everywhere and and it so to me this this was kind of an inevitability you know i just as a as a kid you know my i remember we had around the house this book on how to test and develop your esp my my you know and and it was it was silly you know there's like this you know there, there's like i remember one of these it had like a picture of like free houses and it was just like have someone you know pick one of the free houses and see if you can guess which one you know, they picked. And so I was doing this with my mom. And of course, mom's like, yes, that's the one you I picked. And every time I got it right. So I was like, I am psychic. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I had an older sister. She did a, you know, she did a report on witchcraft in junior high school. And she interviewed a famous local witch and came back with incense and tarot cards and a planchette and all this stuff. You know, there are UFOs, there's the, the TV show In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. So sure. my, my my nerdiness, you know, with Star Trek kind of said, oh, I, I, this is this is Spock, I must watch this show, you know. And it was just like everywhere. Um, you know, there's one of, my, one of my first magic books was uh, Francis King and Stephen Skinner's Techniques of High Magic, which... I got as a mass market paperback at the local grocery store, you know, when I was with my mom grocery shopping. Um, it was, it, it just seemed like it was everywhere, you know, and, and it, clearly not everyone of, of my peers turned out this way, but there's just inescapable. And then, so I, you know, I, I guess I just, you know, I, I just zeroed in on that piece of it as opposed to, all the other things are out in the world, you know, that, that my peers glommed onto. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, I, I, I really feel like it was just kind of the universe just, you know, grabbed me by the shoulders and kind of kicked me down this path. <laughs> I mean, it sure sounds like it, but I, I mean, <laughs> at, at what point did you say, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make this more my professional life, right? I, when did it go from, you know, it's everywhere and it's very cool and it speaks to me to, um, and this is kind of where I'm going to go. Well, I started reading uh, Alistair Crowley when I was 14. Mm-hmm. And God, I'm trying to think how old it was. It was about the time I was 25, I think. Um, you know, I had grabbed you know, the latest biography that had come out. And I was reading this on a, on a flight. You know, I picked it up, you know, visiting San Francisco. So I had to hit all the occult bookshops. And on my flight back, I was reading this book, and I was just like, "This is awful." And it's just like, I, "I could do a, I could do a better job than this." And then this voice in the back of my head said, "Why don't you?" And that's that's where it started. Um, it just it was there's just so much, you know, just inaccuracy about about yeah. Crowley out there and. You know, it's it's not that he was a, a, a saint, but it's just, you know, just get your facts right, you know. And one of the other things that bugged me about a lot of these biographies is that the authors made no secret of their awful opinion of Crowley. And, and you know, to me, I mean, I, I wanted just to, to tell his story and just give the facts. 
and let people decide for themselves whether they think he was cool or awful or you know, just whatever they conclude. It's just, you know, I want my opinions to, you know, as the narrator to be kept to myself. You know, I don't, my, my, I've considered my readers smart enough to make up their own mind. So what would you say is, um, since I can ask you your opinions, uh, <laughs> what would you say actually <laughs> Is there is there something about Crowley that's always sort of bothered you? Uh, is is there anything? I mean, you say he's not a saint, and you know who is right? Uh, yeah. Nobody is. But is there any criticism of him? Do you think, um, even from his most fierce and um, irrational critics, that you think has some merit? Oh, I mean, certainly. You know, I, I think one of the things I kind of became sensitive to in writing this is I think that if you took anybody's lifespan and over 72 years and put it under a microscope oh yeah that any of us has <laughs> flaws you could point to <laughs> um and Crowley is no exception and, and in some ways i think that kind of makes him more identifiable um in the sense that you someone you can identify more with as you know a a leader of a religious movement, you know, as opposed to these, you know, godlike perfected beings that you're supposed to be like, you know, Crowley was someone who, you know, was awful at relationships. You know, he, <laughs> you yeah. know, he just, he, and, and, you know, and, and it wasn't necessarily, it was always necessarily, you know, it wasn't necessarily, it was always bad or nasty to people although he that could be the case but sometimes i mean he just he just wasn't wired that way he wasn't a long-term monogamous relationship kind of guy um he he really didn't have a sense of business <laughs> um you know there, there's or or pr i mean he's you know he he's he had these ideals but in terms of like making things happen um you know one of the one of the stories from his childhood that i kind of made an, uh, a conscious decision not to include in perdurabo is this story about how as a kid he had heard the story that cats have nine lives so he devised a way to kill the family cat nine ways and he kind of tells the story. He's like, I was such a bright and precocious little kid. Listen, listen to this cool experiment I did. Oh, and it's just kind of like not realizing that everyone is like covering their mouths with horror. I mean, he was, it was just like totally clueless that <laughs> this is not the story that you want to tell to boast about how what a precocious young scientist you were. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he he's he's also written and said things that you know, you know that are you know anti-semitic racist misogynist um and and while he was he has also written things that were e very egalitarian and he's and he did seem to be attracted to women who were actually like him bucking the system and being strong and independent and educated and not, and not fitting the mold um you know it's 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 not all one or the other, but there's these, you know, these unsavory bits that, that are, you know, in his writings and it's, you know, a part of, you know, when he lived and as part of, you know, who he was. Um, so before we go, I, I, I want to 
talk about the sort of modern landscape a little bit. And, um, you know, I know you're, you're very active with um, teaching about um, esoteric movements and, um, and, and so forth. And it seems to me that Crowley's mainstream acceptance is not really improved that much, um, <laughs> you know, even, even in our supposedly, you know, woke modern setting. D- do you get a sense that there's any light at the end of that tunnel um is it is it is 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 he becoming more acceptable and less um immediately kind of knee-jerk reacted against and 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 is the do you you feel like the um for instance you know philema that 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 it's that it's going to survive in in the in the long term well, I mean, to answer the first part of that question, I, I do think it's better than it was. Yeah. And and I think in this century in particular, um, you know, again, just the last you know 20 years, that there's been a lot more recognition and, um, yeah, and, and interest in, in Crowley in academic and artistic circles, um, than there had been before that this that you know and this kind of coincides with the idea that i know this the academic study of western esotericism itself has kind of become an established field so i think these two things kind of coincided but um you know i i feel like my book perdurabo which initially came out in 2002 was kind of at the beginning of that wave of people trying to actually take a serious scholarly look at Crowley and his writings. And there's, you know, there's just a number of, you know, academic scholars out there who, you know, are very much interested in writing and talking about Crowley and his influence. There was a collection of papers put out by Oxford University Press um, on Alistair Crowley and Western esotericism. And, um, you know, his his work, whether it be his artwork or the you know, rare editions of his books or whatever, but this has been represented in, you know, a number of, you know, very high profile gallery shows over the years. So, yeah, I think there's, there's this, um, yeah, I think, I think there's a better understanding and an acceptance of Crowley, even, even like, even in like newspapers where, where, he has talked about. I don't. I don't find myself cringing as often as I used to. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> when a good I, um, yeah, and 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 sometimes I'm actually very impressed by saying, "Wow, this reporter actually did their homework." And yeah. you know, rather than you know, notorious Victorian devil worshiper Alistair Crowley, it's you're getting, you know, Edwardian philosopher poet you know <laughs> and mystic you know it's like oh, okay all right you know it's it's there, there's this more temperate tone yeah. um i think the danger there though is that of you know, the mystique kind of wearing off you know Crow, you know crowley as the bad boy um you know right has, yeah has a certain absolutely. appeal and right. you know i think there's this this idea that you know the, the first biography about him you know john simon's you know the great beast was this again this very opinionated and hostile biography which many which you know Crowley's friends kind of took as a betrayal that you know this this guy who met Crowley again in the last year or two of his life you know spent time with his personal papers to write this this biography and then just they they just saw it as a 
work of character assassination, basically. But at the same time, it kind of created this image of Crowley that, you know, arguably kind of kept interest in him alive much more than this sort of sanitized version. Um, there, there was a point where um, his publisher was trying to engage in this you know, rehabilitation of Crowley's reputation, which had been soiled by the, the tabloids and the yellow press of his time. And his friend, Gerald York, made this comment that, you know, set, set the record straight, but also remember that a whitewashed beast is no good at all. So, mm, yeah, I think there's, right. there's that balance there, you know. it's the You, you don't want to kind of, like, <laughs> get rid of all the mystique, you know. Yeah, you don't want to go mainstream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't so think loud. he ever will be, you know. It's, it's you know, even though Crowley writes, you know, or says, you know, the law is for all. Yeah. It's it's available to anyone who wants to follow this path and pursue it, but it may not be the right one for everyone. So, assuming we still have a human race in a hundred years, we, <laughs> um, will 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 Crowley still be read? Will he still be relevant to people? Yeah, but but I hope it's going to be more of it than just Crowley who is read. I mean, the one yeah. thing that I I often felt as you know, as a as a young person reading Crowley, was that he was again he was setting the example, he was setting the model to follow, and that he was pointing the way. And when you pick up something like his book Seven Seven Seven, which is a bunch of just tables of correspondences, you know, for to the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, and you can point to this path and say this is the path of Mars. Mars corresponds to the color red, the number five, the incense is tobacco, and you know so on and so forth. Um, you know, or Crowley had a, you know, a dictionary of, you know, gematria, which is basically numerology based on the, the fact that in Hebrew and Greek, the, the letters also served as numbers. So this wasn't like some artificial invention. This is this, you know, one can make this argument that mystics, you know, of, of times before took advantage of these, of, of these properties, um, and found meaning in words that add up to the same number and so on. And that by putting together these sorts of resources, this wasn't like the the be all and the end all. This was this was a start. You know, and I I had taken Crowley seven 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 and my studies kind of came up with you know another hundred or two hundred extra columns looking at other you know mythologies and so on. And you know, when Crowley is talking about, you know, like his recommended reading lists. He was basically talking about the philosophers and scientists and other thinkers and writers and even works of fiction um, that were suggestive, but they were all things that were current and cutting edge when he put this list together. And and it seems like now we've got this sort of, I don't know, it's kind of like this, you know, the the SCA of occultism, you know, it's... People are, yeah. are like studying these, you know, they've kind of, they've, they've lost the spirit of, 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 of what he was after, you know, I'm saying, you know, yeah, you're reading lists today should be who's, who's cutting edge in science and philosophy and, and religious studies now, not these people from a hundred years ago, many of whom, you know, their writings are kind of, have been kind of superseded, if not discredited and and yes that's useful to read to get to understand where crowley was coming from but in terms of what he was saying 
um, you know, you, you need to be reading the cutting edge stuff. And so I'm hoping that in a hundred years, there will be other voices that have built, you know, on Crowley's work and that we were talking about those people as well. And that this will be, you know, a movement that has grown and, you know, with, with the times and is not just, you know, looking backward at someone who lived, you know, 200 years ago or, you know, depending on what our reference point <laughs> is. Right. Um, anything you would like to promote before we sign off here? Well, I, I guess I would say that if you are interested in finding out more about the life of Aleister Crowley, then my book, Perdurabo, The Life of Aleister Crowley, would be a great place to start. Uh -huh. um, if you want something a little... Um, lighter because it's like a 700 page book so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a read if you want something kind of quick and easy um i've also got a book called the wiser concise guide to alistair crowley and uh that's 128 pages so it's designed to kind of uh, be a very quick introduction and uh, i do have coming out uh hopefully later this year or or, or if not, then early next, it's still working on the details, but I'm doing an edited and annotated edition of one of Crowley's early works, The Sword of Song. Okay. And um, yeah, it's it's a really witty and clever bit of writing. It's essays and poetry and other stuff um, that kind of needs, you know, a hundred years on needs some of those jokes to be explained. So uh, if, you're, if you read the book by itself, you might come away scratching your head, but um, this one kind of has copious annotations to explain what the heck he's talking about. <laughs> well, Richard Kaczynski, uh, thanks so much. It's been really fascinating. Oh, thank you for inviting me on your show. Mr. Trump!